Hello, and welcome to this half-hour dose of weekly Jewish spirituality, brought to you by Mishkan's Thursday Morning Minyan. Jews have a tradition of praying three times a day, and at Mishkan, we have a daily virtual Minyan at 8 a.m. Central to get your day started. Folks, join us from across the country and across the world as we begin each day with words and songs of gratitude, inspiration, healing, and Torah. If you miss us in the morning, join us here every week for the replay of our Thursday Minyan, hosted by me, Rabbi Lizzie Heideman. During my sabbatical, I know you'll enjoy hearing from the voices of Rabbi Stephen and guest leaders. Without further ado, I invite you to breathe a little deeper, connect a little more with yourself, with God, with Torah, with this community, and with the world around you, wherever you are, whatever your time zone. So we're going to be reading from Shemot, or in the first parsha, the first Torah reading from the book of Exodus. So it shares its name with the book. Shemot, or Exodus. Shemot literally means names. We'll be reading from the first few verses here in chapter 1. And the question that I'm holding, I'm sitting with, is we see a shift in the relationship between the Israelites who are living in the land of Egypt um, and the Egyptians. And in particular, the blame for that shift is put on Pharaoh. And I think the obvious answer is that this is a new Pharaoh. And so if it is a new leader that's risen up over Egypt, then what has changed is my question. But also some of the rabbis say that it's not actually a new Pharaoh, but the same Pharaoh that interacted with Joseph, who's taken on a new personality or a new approach to how he is interfacing, how he is interacting with the Israelites and so if that's the case, my question is what's shifted? So the question for both, whether it's a new pharaoh or an old pharaoh with a new attitude, what has changed um, over these years, whether it's a short period of time or a long period of time? But first, we'll read from the Torah. We'll say the blessing over studying Torah together, which is La'asok B'divrei Torah Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kedishanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu Blessed are you, source of all things, who brings holiness into our lives through our actions, asking us to busy ourselves with words of Torah. Uvimin, Dan Vnaftali, God Vasher, Vayehi, Kol Nefesh, Yotze Yerech Yaakov, Shivim Nafesh, Vyosef Hayab Mitzrayim, Vayamod Yosef, Veho Echav, Veho Hador Hahu, Uvene Israel, Paru, Vayish, Retsu, the year boo, bim old me old, the timale haaret otam, via com melechadash al mitzraim, asher yoda et yosef, vayomer el amo, hine am bene Israel, rav vatsum mimenu. Hava nit hak malo pen yirbe the haya 
Kitik Redna Milchama Venosav Gamhu Al Son Enu Venilcham Vano Vela Minha Arels. Which in English says, These are the names, Ele Shemot. This is the line from which Shemot, the book, gets its name. These are the names of the sons of Israel um, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household. There's Reuben and Shimon, Levi and Yehuda, Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, and the total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt, his second youngest son. Now Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. The Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly so the land was filled with them. And a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, these Israelites are much too numerous for us. Literally um, great in number among us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. And this is the beginning of enslavement uh, in Egypt, which would last um, for a very long time. So my question again is, what changed? What shifted? Um, is this an old king, a new king? Um, it literally says a new king. Um, but one of the ways that the rabbis interpret this is that the old king had a change in heart. Um, and so I'm just curious what comes up for people, what changed, what shifted in the relationship between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Uh, Glenn. Yeah. Um, the two things that occurred to me is one, if you interpret this to be the same king, then he's a Methuselah type king because we've already said Joseph, all the brothers, that whole generation has died out. So clearly, and they've increased in number. So clearly many, many, many years have passed. So this king, if it's the same Pharaoh, then he's lived for, you know, a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, so I, to me, that seems less credible than it is a different king. But the other thing that occurred to me is, the Egyptians see these people as different and separate. So these, I'm assuming the Israelites have kept themselves apart. They haven't integrated into um, Egyptian society. And I guess, you know, that makes sense. If they're worshiping one God, the Egyptians are, you know, have a pantheon of deities. So they've kept themselves apart. They're not intermarrying. They're not they're not integrating into the society they're they're creating their own society so that they would be perceived as separate so that that's the other thought that comes to my mind yeah that's really interesting you know we do know joseph does take uh, uh an egyptian wife um but we also know that at least it seems all the brothers are already um, married, already have children by the time they come down to Egypt. Um, and although we are also told that uh, we leave Egypt as a mixed multitude, right? The question is how, how much, um, 
how mixed, right? Um, how much of that mixture is Egyptian and maybe not, right? The other peoples who are living in Egypt or who were enslaved in Egypt, how much of that mixing happened pre-slavery versus in slavery? Um, and, uh, and yeah, is, is Egypt equipped to be a multi-ethnic society or was maybe the expectation that the Israelites would just kind of integrate, um, assimilate and become part of, uh, whatever the monolithic Egyptian culture is. I saw Suzanne in the chat pointed out that this is the old fifth column nonsense. I actually use this as an example in the class I teach to our intro students on anti-Semitism um, to show how some of the uh, common anti-Semitic tropes that we experience um, are very, very old, including the idea of the fifth column, right? That uh, we as a people um, are always more loyal to ourselves or perhaps to some external entity, um, the metaphorical or actual uh, state of Israel. Um, rather than the place that we live, um, that we would potentially join up with the enemy um, or are already colluding with the enemy of the place that we live. Um, so it's interesting to see that, that kind of through line. What else came up for people? Well, this started out as sort of a not quite serious mental tangent, but thinking about what Glenn just said, if this is the same Pharaoh, he's uh, he's got to be a vampire, right? Or some sort of undead <laughs> creature. And like, so that started off as kind of a joking thought, but I am thinking about how we see a lot in um, early rabbinic thought, a tendency to literally demonize the things that frighten us. I'm thinking of specifically like the way that Lilith gets treated. Mm. Um and I'm wondering if that actually is relevant here that um, the rabbis feel it necessary to demonize this figure of Pharaoh even farther than the original text it goes. They, they, they want to go even farther than the original text. So, like, I don't think anybody would argue that the way that Pharaoh was portrayed in Shemot is particularly like sympathetic, um, but the rabbis really like they have to make him literally evil or supernatural in some way to sort of accommodate for, I think, all of the psychological projection that gets dumped onto the figure of Pharaoh in rabbinic literature. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think this is kind of almost like another, like a, some, somebody who's almost inhuman in some ways. And that kind of maybe explains that, that shift. You know, there is an interesting, actually, among the rabbis who debate, or sorry, among the rabbis who argue that this is the same Pharaoh, there is a debate whether it was Pharaoh's change in heart or the people's change in heart. Um, one, so one, because the plain meaning of the text is that's literally a new king, right? So it says Melech Hadash, right? That is a new king. Um, and so for the rabbis who say <clears throat> it's, it's still the same king, one camp is saying that the new king means that he issued new decrees, right? Same person, new decrees. But there is actually one other camp that says it's a new king in the sense that he was taken from power and then reinstated, um, that the people were the ones who were uh, concerned about the Israelites and that this Pharaoh was like, no, remember Joseph, remember how these individuals, right, saved us from famine. Um, and so they actually remove him from power for three months, I think the Midrash says, um, and then reinstate him once he caves their demands. Um, which is what that makes him a new king. So um, I bring in that to say there are there are rabbis who definitely say, you know, who kind of try to create this villainous figure um, who's almost like this kind of eternal, right? This eternal figure of Pharaoh. Um, and then there are those who even say that um, 
<clears throat> that maybe actually Pharaoh was the one who was uh, sympathetic to us. Um, was saying, no, I, I'm the one actually with institutional memory here. Um, you all are not. And that was actually the people who, uh, who put so much pressure on him that he ended up caving. All of these, I think, big interesting questions about, again, like, right, what shifted, right? What changed in Egyptian society or was actually, were the Israelites always just barely tolerated? Um, and, uh, and this is nothing new. Um, and maybe the chance for a new king or to put pressure on an old king, um, uh, finally arose that they could, they could do that. I don't know if it's Larry or Gail who just raised your hand. Oh, it's Gail. I, it, it was just reminding me of um, how in this country and in other countries, when there's a minority that's getting more populous, how the um, majority um, really gets unnerved by it. Um, the uh, uh, What's happening here with that... Uh, I can't remember the year if it's 2030 or 2040, but that there will be majority of the country will be people who are black and brown. And that is freaking out and has been freaking out a lot of white supremacists uh, here. And that is what I was thinking, uh, in addition to what Glenn said. Mm. Does that make any sense to you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the parallels are very strong. But other countries, too. Uh, yeah, I would I would echo what you were saying, Gail, that I was just struck by the emphasis on the number, you know, the multitude. They were great, these Jews among us, as long as they were just a small number. But when they got to be more, um, it was an issue of concern. And it just makes me think of like, you know, we're OK with integration as long as there's not a lot of the other among us. But once the other becomes a majority, then, you know, that's a reason for concern. So they, uh, in that passage, speak more than once, or it's referenced more than once, the number, the multitudes, the, you know, so they were prolific. They had a lot of kids. I, something I do appreciate about, this is um, something I appreciate about Torah generally is that, we use the example um, that Susanna highlighted of the fifth column, right? This old anti-Semitic trope that we see here, um, but we also see questions of right, immigration, of national character, of um, assimilation versus uh, diversity, of uh, fears of a new majority, right, rising within a place that has. Um, maybe had a singular or um, a small set of uh, cultural, ethnic, you know, linguistic representation for a long time. And um, it shows us that Torah, actually, even a few passages, right? We only read, how many verses did we read? Uh, only read 10 verses of Torah, and actually most of those were just lists of names. Um, but it brings up a lot of questions um, and uh, around, you know, issues that are still really relevant today. Um, and, um, and I think that that, uh, is what inspires me about Torah is that it gets us to ask, I think, good questions, um, about our own society today. And then to, to see that, you know, some, some things, you know, some things have not changed and some things have changed. Um, so, um, I, appreciate I just that. wondered what it meant to, they will rise from the ground. So mm. that the fifth column idea 
does connect for me with that. But is there a literal like reference to if they're they're all buried here, right? Like we've had generations who are living and now dying here and are buried. Is there any literal connection or what does that mean? The Hebrew, they will rise from the ground. Yeah, it's quite literally right. Um, go up, right, to, to Va'alava, to go up Minha'aretz, from, from or out of the land. Um, Rashi interprets it as against our will, right, as a turn of phrase. Others actually say, right, because it's, 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 it's in the singular, um, which is, which is interesting. Others interpret it as potentially that we will, we will actually be like, we will be forced out of the land and they will come to possess it in our stead. Uh, although I think Rambam takes issue with that. I'm just looking really quickly. Um, some see it as an, an as an, an against, right? Uh, mean as against, but then Rambam says that's not actually, that's not actually correct. So he says, it's possible that Pharaoh's saying, if wars will occur, the Israelites may join forces with their enemies to take the spoil, to take the prey. They will get themselves up out of this land to the land of Canaan with all of our belongings. And we will not be able to uh, wreak our vengeance on them, nor go to war against them. Um, so so also, there's also another interpretation. This might mean that they might like rise up, take everything, and then leave, right? Um, and they won't be able to follow them, which is interesting because that actually is in some ways predictive of what will happen, right? Which is that, right? That's the Passover story um, uh, of, of actually rising up and ending up taking a lot with him, right? Pharaoh says, like, take, take everything, go, right? Um, so it's in a weird way prescient. Um, and so you ask a good question in chat. How long are people, before people are no longer considered to be strangers in the land? Um, you know, and I think actually, Gail, it's a really interesting question because we have examples of peoples who've come to, or you think of the American story of people who've come to this country um, who were initially considered strangers um, and um, are now no longer, right? I think about like Italian Americans, Irish Americans, right, who are very much considered other for some time. You think about other populations, right? Like black Americans who are still very much considered other, um, if not the part of the fabric of American society. Um, and then you have some stories like our story, um, you know, recognizing obviously the Jewish story, um, the black story, the Irish story, Italian story, like are all woven through the Jewish story because we are a multi-ethnic and multilinguistic people. But the fascinating thing about the Jewish story and in, in particular, I think white presenting Jews is that, um, we've experienced moments of not being the stranger and that we've still experienced moments of being the stranger. Um, and there was actually like a, an ebb and flow there in a way that I'd be curious if other peoples have also experienced that. Um, and I think that's why these questions are really, um, uh, provocative, um, because there's some people who've never been able to not be the stranger. There's some people who in a relatively short period of time become not strangers. And then there's the, the Jewish story, um, where we, are sometimes treated like strangers and sometimes not, um, depending on what's happening in the world. Okay, we've reached the end of our time. I really appreciate all of you. You've been listening to Contact Chai, a production of Mishkan Chicago. If you were inspired or informed by this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that others can encounter our work. And if you appreciate what Mishkan is doing, I invite you to join as a builder or make a donation on our website at mishkanchicago.org. Shabbat Shalom.